Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. Things are changing. And the second big reason for inflation is Vladimir Putin. Not a joke. Putin's invasion of Ukraine has driven up gas prices and food prices all over the world. Well, that, good listeners, was the voice of President Biden today in New Hampshire talking about prices, inflation, supply chains, all the things that are uh, bedeviling him and pulling at his approval rating. A. Murphy? Yeah. Do you think he was eyeing the Canadian border, thinking time to run north and start again? Polling numbers are looking pretty grim. And to talk about all that, I am excited today. An old friend of mine, we've been... We've been at this racket longer than we care to admit. We have Dr. Witt Ayers from North Star Research, a great Republican strategist and pollster. We uh, we did the old Lamar Alexander come on along campaign together back in 95 and worked a few other races. Witt is a former president and chairman of the American Association of Political Consultants. He started as like a Marvel superhero backstory. Started as a college professor at the University of South Carolina, but got pulled into politics like all of us and has worked as a consultant all over the place. Highly respected in the Republican Party uh, and an expert on the South, which is where a lot of the action is on in our, our Republican world these days. So Witt, welcome to Hacks on Tap. Mike, great to be with you. Robert, great to be with you here. Looking forward to this. So much to talk about. Why don't we start with Biden and then maybe we'll go to the big picture a little bit of how, how we got here. But here we are. We got another incumbent president with low numbers. Now, not unnatural in the first term, but they seem to me to be kind of extra lower. You know, if it isn't first beat up by COVID like every incumbent, now beat up by inflation seems to not have a real grip on a domestic agenda, at least that voters understand. What can he do? Gibbs, wit, you know, save him, because I don't know how anymore. <laughs> I, I think the, the clock is ticking on the poor man, for at least for the midterms. Well, it's, it's pretty amazing, Mike. I mean, he a little over a year ago, he had substantial majority job approval. Mm-hmm. Uh, he started out far more popular than Donald Trump ever did. Uh, but in, in my judgment, he squandered majority job approval in a little over a year. And now he's as unpopular as Donald Trump was before November the 6th. That's saying something. No, a number of factors. I think he had a premature declaration of victory over COVID on last July 4th. Uh, he dismissed surging inflation as a temporary phenomenon. I don't think that helped his credibility a lot. Uh, he had the disaster withdrawal from Afghanistan, which embarrassed America in the eyes of the world and undermined his image as an expert in foreign policy. And then he kept beating his head against a hopeless build back better bill that hurt him in a, in a number of ways. I mean, I, 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 for the life of me, I couldn't figure out why he did it because Semina and Manchin made no secret of what they were willing to accept and it bore no resemblance to what he is promoting. You know, so he, he, I think raised expectations of the left before, before dashing them. Uh, and then he made it seem like he was not particularly influential, even with his own party. Um, he delayed passage of a bipartisan infrastructure bill that I think really is a significant accomplishment. Yeah. I thought he could have rode he, that horse a lot more. Oh, yeah. Well, he, he delayed it because he was trying to get the Build Back Better bill. Right, right. Uh, when he desperately needed a win, winning begets winning and losing begets losing. 
Uh, and then he had the press conference announcing the deal on infrastructure and announced he was going to veto it if he didn't also get this other bill that was never going to pass. Oh, he muddied his own achievement on, on the infrastructure bill. Um, and it made people, a lot of people voted for Biden as what they hoped would be a center left moderate. Yeah, uh, and it made him made him feel like they've been sold the bill of goods. He ran one way and governed another. So I think there are a number of critical mistakes that the administration has made over the course of the last year that squandered majority job approval. Yeah. So Robert, I blame you. Um, <laughs> all right. You, I'll. Uh, how do you I'll, fix uh, all this? I'll. Uh, I'll take the blame. No, I. You know, look. I think the writ large, obviously, political environment is. One of, we've been talking about this for a while. The American people are anxious. They're, they, yeah. they, they, they're uncertain about the future. I think that's partly a whiplash of the two plus years of, uh, of, of COVID and whatnot. And now everything's more expensive, even if it's, you know, I was, saw somebody fighting on Twitter about, uh, well, it's not, it's really, if you think about the net increase in costs and I was like, good Lord, I think you've lost people. <laughs> um, and, and I do think that the, the challenge, you know, also something we've talked about, Mike, is I think that the challenge on a few of the things that you mentioned with it, it, it sort of feels and felt like Joe Biden was being buffeted by rather than shaping those events. Yep. Uh, and I think that if you're a president, that's always hard to do. Uh, that's a hard place to sit. I think done a far better job, uh, on Ukraine and, and, in Russia. Um, but look, Murphy, I've, I've said this before. I, I, you know, we can argue and we, we won't spend the hour arguing over build back better, but we know there's a lot of parts of it that are popular. He's not going to get a three and a half trillion dollar bill. He's not even going to get a $1.8 trillion bill, but boy, I keep saying this and, and maybe, maybe it'll happen. Go pick a fight, go yeah. pick a fight on prescription drug costs, go pick a fight on college affordability, go pick a fight on taxes, things that quite frankly, many of which we waged the, the fight in 2020 on. And, and I think we were on good ground, but you know, get in the fight. And if worse comes to worse, the Senate Republicans say, no, we're not going to have this fight. Great. Well, that's uh, half of politics, picking smart fights people understand that are relevant to their lives and have a clever timing about it. Used to be the fun part, you know, when you're working for a governor of uh, caucus in the legislature, you wake up in the day and said, all right, let's have a nice scrap about this issue that really works for us today. And you go try to do it, and then you try to keep it alive a while. They they were boiling the ocean. I still don't know what Build Back Better is. It, it sounded to me like a chain of chiropractor, you know, offices or something. I if they'd made it a if they'd just done a child care fight and maybe something on prescription drugs. So you know, it's all communism, and I oppose it on a on on a basis. But there there was reform room, and those issues have grip. Instead, it, it the the narrative is, as Witt said earlier was failure. And when you're president, you can't look weak. And when you're held up by your own party, you know, his left wing. Uh, anyway, it it was not good. So what 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 are they trying to do today? We we heard him. He's up in New Hampshire. Um, he's talking about inflation. We haven't gotten to the win buttons yet. Uh, for you, you oldsters who remember Jerry Ford, what uh, you're as a, both of you guys are communications wizard. What what would be the three five three by five card you you'd hand them today to try to get a relaunch going? 
I don't disagree with Robert about picking a fight, but I'd be real sure that the fight I picked was one that could get bipartisan support in the Congress. And when uh, there's it, an yeah. obvious one sitting out there right now. The reform of the Electoral Count Act of 1887 is critical to protect democracy from efforts to steal future presidential elections. Yep. There's a bipartisan group of senators working on a reform bill that would clarify that procedure and prevent the fiasco of January 6th. But so far, the administration's response to that is, well, it's a distraction for more important voting rights bills. I'm, I'm sorry, the House is on fire. And that when the House is on fire, your democracy is threatened. You do whatever you can to put out that fight first, and then you take on others. So I think that's one where he could pick that fight. They get bipartisan support in the Congress, and he would happen to uh, strengthen dramatically our our democracy and and far reduce the chance of another January 6th. That's an example of a fight I think he could pick and win. So I would say, look, I, I agree with Witt. I think getting into a fight, if you want to get into a fight to save democracy, I think that's a good fight. Um, I, I, I disagree. I think we ought to have a fight a little on the, the voting rights stuff. We tried that. That didn't work out so well. It lasted about three and a half minutes. Boy, I'd get into a fight about some of the stuff that even isn't bipartisan, because quite frankly, I think the, the challenge that you have, and, and, and we are sailing toward this, which is, um, and, and these are hard to get out of. I mean, look, there are forces that are way beyond this, but we're sailing toward a referendum on the president, not a contrast between two visions or two parties. And I think if the longer we go and the more certainty that that race isn't changed, at least partially from a referendum, I think it's going to be a very, very long night on November 6th. No, I, I agree with that, but Witt's right, and we've talked about this. First of all, the Electoral College Act, the, the one we operate under now, is like written on dried elk skin. I mean, it's incredibly antiquated, you know, the quill pens. It doesn't make any sense now. It, it leaves the back door to the process on a presidential un, unpadlocked. So you could get it done. And the nice thing about it is it would give Biden a victory, which he could then go start a us and them fight on because it's also bait. You've got enough senators on both sides who have grown up to get something done. You got some kooks, though. And Trump will come out of his hole and scream about this. So you, you have the right stage villains. You get a win. And then you pivot onto something bigger with a little steam behind you. And I agree. Biden said some nice things about this reform stuff at the beginning. And if I were him, yeah. I would just take, you know, hit the triple and then hear a cheer for a change and then move on. But let's pivot, though. Let's talk about the grand old party uh, where Witt and I have labored for many Oh, I'll say years instead of decades. You know, it's it's funny with the Ukraine deal, because when I was a uh, disgraced former chairman of the Georgetown University College Republicans, I I amassed a small criminal record by getting scooped up by the cops as we protested uh, in front of the Russian embassy in the early '80s. They were bad guys, and it was we were we were against them. Now, I think the majority of the party's kind of fallen back there. And I'd be curious what you think about where the primary voters are on it. But we have Republican leaders who, leaders in the greater Republisphere, uh, who seem really soft on, on I, it's still hard for me not to say the Soviets. Uh, what do we think about that? As the foreign policy stakes rise up, is that going to boil off? Will it be a problem for the Republicans? Will it be an internal fight? Uh, or is it just a different populist world now and, and strong men like Putin have a certain creepy appeal? I don't get it. The, the Republicans who have 
uh, been sympathetic to Putin really are a, a crazy fringe. Uh, most of the time, Americans don't vote on foreign policy where our troops aren't directly engaged. But this war seems different to me. I mean, Putin has single-handedly resurrected the importance of NATO in the modern world when the previous president was talking about pulling out. Uh, he's united Americans in a way that hasn't been evident since 9-11. And this war is more than a regional conflict. It, it's become a symbol of the contest between Western liberal democracy and authoritarian totalitarianism. So I'm, I'm not at all sure that the, the past pattern of Americans not voting on foreign policy uh, where troops aren't engaged is necessarily going to hold here now. That said, I still think domestic issues like inflation and jobs and that sort of thing are, are going to be the driving force. But, but this Ukraine war is, is different from, say, a Bosnia war that, that, that Clinton had uh, in a very fundamentally different way, I think. So, Murphy, let me bring you in on this because you're, you and, and Witt are, are a lot better forecasters and prognosticators around what Republicans are thinking than, than I'm ever going to be. Why do you think it is this way? Why, why is it that a couple of dozen House Republicans voted against, you know, a non-binding support resolution for NATO? I mean, wh wh what is what what's happened? I, I keep I keep thinking of like Reagan in front of uh, yeah Reagan in front of the the gates in Berlin, and I keep thinking what what why what's the love affair with Putin? Well, I'm curious what Witt thinks. I'll give you my guess, uh, which is I think it's kind of a bizarro salad of things together that I think the pressure of, of the Russian atrocities in Ukraine and the brilliance of the Ukrainian leadership at social media. You know, I, I drive around here in L.A. I see Ukrainian flags everywhere. Um, I, I was really moved. There was a, a friend of ours, very gifted, artistic 16-year-old daughter, got together with a 12-year-old and started doing kid um, uh, art to raise humanitarian and it, uh, money for Ukraine. It is totally blown up. It, it's art for peace. It's incredible. And and this thing is like, you know, so the American people know what side they're on. As Witt said, it's a fight about what counts. As far as the fringe of the GOP on this, you know, we've had a long history in the Republican Party which normally gets beaten down, but isolationism and nativism isn't particularly new in our history. You know, we got two big oceans, European wars. So there's, I think there's some of that. And then there's this populism, uh, which is, you know, not our fight far away. And, and Putin is strong in some ways. And, and Trump has created an appetite for this strong man called Dio stuff. So there's a little bit of that. And then you had Trump Europe bashing to some extent. NATO's a fraud. So some people pick that up. And it, it's all kind of kind of rolled together into, you know, this it's not our fight. It's far away. Putin is a strong guy. The liberal elite created this problem by talking about Ukraine and NATO. And also, there's this reflexive tribalism. If, if Joe Biden says we need to stand strong against Putin, well, he's, he's our enemy. So therefore, the enemy of Biden is sort of our friend. It's absolutism where they don't think about the national interest. And, you know, it, it, it's... Uh, that's my guess, but it's hard for me to fathom because I'm old and I started out in the Russian area studies business and they were bad guys. And guess what? They're back to being bad guys.
Yep. I completely agree with Mike. There's another element here too, Robert, uh, and that is that the kinds of people Mike and I have worked for our entire careers, Lamar Alexander, for example, uh, that he mentioned, uh, are people who wanted to make a difference in their legislative roles to make life better for their constituents. We've got a group of folks now who don't care about that at all. All they care about is getting on TV, getting yeah. social media following, and getting famous. And, you know, as, as one of these uh, Republican congressmen said one time, uh, if you're not making news, you're not doing your job. Well, I kind of thought doing your job was improving <laughs> life through legislation. Right. But that's not the way they see it. And so anybody who's going to give them visibility, if it's Tucker Carlson or if it's some kind of social media thing, uh, you're going to have some crazies responding to that. The, the good news is that Putin's war is so brutal and so vicious that it anybody who tries to defend what he has done in Ukraine just looks like a nutcase. And they're not going to have a lot of credibility, even with conservative republicans yeah and i think i think one thing that 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 putin fanboy thing under the pressure of these atrocities is crackling because it's taking the issue from number 28 up to you know number two after inflation or three and nato's close to getting involved a lot of nato hardware is being pushed to the ballot the europeans are on red alert we're shipping them a lot of stuff i'd argue even more but biden seems to be tilting in that direction so as the stakes raise the you have to really be crazy to be there which thins their numbers a little so I, I do have some optimism there that the fringe is going to become even. And if it's down to Marjorie Taylor Greene and Tucker Carlson making a fast buck on Fox, that, that, that's a limited force. And that's where I think it'll wind up. Speaking of uh, maybe not so balanced former leaders, Donald Trump, and we can get to a little bit of the state of the GOP around him, but I, I'm fascinated by, do, do you two think he's done enough He's obviously going to run, wants to run desperately in 2024. Has he done enough to get away from the comments he made at the beginning of this around the brilliant strategy of, uh, of Vladimir Putin to not have hurt himself in an even bigger way come the election in 2024, even if it's in a Republican primary? I'm not sure that the people who really love Donald Trump care what he says. Well, that's true. Yeah. This is beyond anything that he could say. I think the influence of Donald Trump is going to be determined in large part over the primaries that are coming up over the next three or four months. I mean, you know, he just got out for J.D. Vance in Ohio and in a multi-candidate primary, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. You know, if, if those guys lose, um, people are going to start to say, you know, well, maybe I can get Trump to endorse my opponent here. Um, it's we just don't know what's going to happen with a lot of these primaries, but Trump has, has put his oar in the water in so many different primaries around the country. Uh, he has, he has taken a, a real risk with his influence, uh, in the party and his influence up to this point has been, uh, driven by the fact that he could affect Republican primary voters. So we're going to see if that continues. If it does, then he is still the, the giant in the middle of the Republican Party. 
Yeah, he's getting what the Wall Street guys call mark to market. Yeah, we own this office <laughs> building. It's worth $500 million. And then you put a for sale sign on and find out it's 214 what you can get that day, yeah. what it's really worth. Uh, we're going to get into some of those races in a minute, but I, I, I wanted to ask Wit and, and you, Robert, something. Because Robert and I argue about the Trump grip a little more. I tend to be, I, I, I tend to take the theory and maybe, you know, it's a confirmation bias as somebody who's been very active in the anti-Trump stuff, uh, that he, I think he's got a half-life and, uh, politics is always changing. And I bounced something off you. I was very interested in some of that data Tony Fabrizio did a while back with the tribes of the GOP. I think he ran a mm -hmm. survey of 1200 folks and, the way it kind of broke out was about one out of six Republicans are, I would I, I wouldn't quite call them anti-Trump, but but not not on board. You know, they sound like I do. And then you've got that eighty-ish percent approval rating Trump has. But then when you tab it out and say, should he be the nominee next time or time to try somebody new, it splits in a half more or less. You know, a couple points to the Trump side. So to me, it's like the party loyalty thing is you can't say anything bad about Trump. But underneath that, these they seem to be open to moving on more than the media kind of writes. And I believe this is true, but we need some races to find out. And as you say, the primaries this year will be big. But I, I look around and I see smart, ambitious political operators holding Republican office, not being afraid to do at least the initial steps to look at looking at running. So my view is, 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 is Trump is stronger in the rearview mirror than he might be in the future. You know, and we're guessing here, but are you crazy? Or do you think that move beyond but not, not sound like a Democrat and attack him vote in the primary is a, is a pretty big hunk and, and could be activated by the right candidate going forward? I think that's a real force that you're talking about, Mike. Uh, we, we've got some data from the Wall Street Journal NBC News poll that has asked repeatedly over the years uh, for Republicans, uh, do you consider yourself closer or more supporter of Donald Trump or more supporter right. of the GOP? And for the longest time, more supporter of Donald Trump was in the mid to upper 50s. Yeah, it was blown it's it away. Down, yeah. yeah, and it's now gotten closer to 40. Yeah. So there's been a substantial diminution that we can point to with data. But I also think if you just talk to Republicans, uh, particularly Trump-supporting Republicans, they're never going to say a bad word about the guy. Mm -hmm. But, man, they really don't want to go back to the divisions, the fights right. uh, that they had in their family, with their friends. And if somebody comes along in the Trump-without-the-crazy lane— that persuades them that they can have what they liked with Trump without all the divisiveness and out, without all the drama. Uh, I think that person is going to be very formidable. Right now, Ron DeSantis seems to have a, a pretty good bead on that lane. Uh, there will be some people who will be in the non-Trump, more uh, governing wing of the Repo Republican Party lane as well. Uh, but I think even if he runs, Ron DeSantis has made very clear that he's running. I think Tom Cotton's running. I think there are a number of people who are going to be running, and they're not going to be scared out by Donald Trump. And if you can get what you like with Trump without the drama, 
Right. Uh, I think that's going to be a formidable candidate. Tastes great, less filling. You know, Trump light. They, they sold a lot of that beer. What I hear from regulars around town, and then Gibbs, you can chime in and tell us we're crazy. I will. Um, yeah, no, I can tell you're winding up. <laughs> uh, what, what the regulars, you know, when, when and I have to meet with them under the cover of darkness, you know, what they kind of say is, you know, the vexing thing here is back in the beginning, Trump was kind of on his game and could get some votes, some different votes we never got before. That, you know, that was always part of the rationalization for him. But now when we got crazy, Trump only want to talk about the election being stolen. And two, Trump's negatives are sky high. Biden's screwing up. Nobody's politically intimidated by Kamala Harris as a nominee. So the next presidential race is ours to win unless we run somebody the Democrats could actually beat, which is Trump. So what is the upside of Trump now for the pure cause of winning? Now, we're afraid of our primaries. We're afraid to say it. But the, the, the and I'm curious what you're hearing with, the, the calculus that Trump is the fast pony to take advantage of a huge Republican opportunity they perceive to be coming in the future is hard to find other than the real movement people who are Trump no matter what. And that's a bad place to be in when the people who are in the party who care about winning, which is a lot of them, think you're a problem. No, I I agree with you. I agree with you. Robert, do you have a take on that? Yeah, I'm going to tell you you're both crazy. Um, no, no, I mean, look, my theory on this and, and look, I, I saw the numbers that you point out with in the NBC poll and and look, there there is definitely a change. I just don't know if it's... And, and look, he may well lose a decent number of primaries, but I still don't see the loss of grip on the Republican primary voters that are going to come out in 2024. I, I, I think it makes all the common sense in the world to say, boy, if you can find Trump without Trump, that'd be great. All this kind of stuff. I think the the party rules and the draw and following he has, I think it's going to make him awfully hard to beat. I, I really do. And and now I don't disagree, Murphy, with what you said. It's it is an interesting, it's an interesting sort of dance, right? I, I'm I'm not sure Biden can beat a lot of people, but I I'd, I'd bet Biden could beat Trump. And I'm not sure Trump could beat a lot of people, but I know Trump thinks he can beat Biden. And it'll be interesting to see if do those two stay around because they're a, they have a bit of you know gravitational force with each other it, i think if one goes maybe the, the the other one may as well but i i i just i don't feel like yet we've seen trump substantially different politically than we have when he was on top mostly because i think this idea of trump and trump versus the republican party is i think trump is the republican party uh and i i think they're in some ways, have become more indistinguishable. Well, it's hard to argue against that when you see some of the things the RNC has done and the yeah. fact that we don't even adopt a platform because we might not want to disagree with anything Donald Trump says. So, I mean, there's, there's a substantial amount of, of data to support what you're saying, Robert. I just, I think that we will know so much more six months from now that we know today about his influence on the party. Well, yeah. we're going to talk about a couple of those primaries next, but First, I'm going to ask Witt to put his political science uh, professor hat back on, dust it off here. And 
What is it? We were talking before we start taping. You made a point, and I think it's worth discussing. What has driven this change, evolution, decline, whatever you want to call it, American politics? Where now, we, you know, in the old days, if you had to write a or had to draw a symbol of American politics, you had like an eagle. Now it would be an ejector seat because we we have this kind of cycle of of punishment, new guys more punishment. I mean, go through that a little bit because I thought it was a very canny insight and we should talk about it. We've got a dynamic here that's not healthy for the political system. If you look at Gallup's ideology of the American voters, and this is recent data, just just last year, 9% of Americans said they're very conservative. 7% said they're very liberal. That's 16% that are on the wings. 37% 37% moderate, 27% conservative, 17% liberal. The vast majority of Americans are within shouting distance of the center. But Pew has done some great work on this, talking about the hardcore Republican and the hardcore Democratic voters. They weren't that far apart in 1994 or even 2004. But by 2017, they'd separated into these two different universes. And so you have that factor coupled with the fact that you have gerrymandered congressional districts where the major threat to a Democrat is from the left, the major threat to a Republican is from the right. You have social media fostering toxic attitudes about the other party. And so you end up with Republicans thinking that Democrats are not just their opponents. 60% of Republicans think Democrats are enemies. Yeah, 40% of Democrats think Republicans are enemies. And when you believe that the other party is an enemy rather than just an opponent, that's a real threat to the future of our democratic system. Yeah, it's a license to do anything. I'm right, you're evil. You must be destroyed. Yeah, exactly. You're yeah. evil. And and it, it and it's gotten to the point where it's so toxic. Pew does this temperature gauges about how you feel about uh, Republicans and Democrats, warm and cold. You know, seventy nine percent of Democrats feel cold, fifty seven percent very cold about Republicans, and Republicans are the same thing. Sixty percent of Republicans feel very cold about Democrats. That is a major problem. So you've got a, a an electorate most of whom are within shouting distance of the center. And then you've got these two parties that are throwing up these candidates that are far from where most voters are. And so then one party gets control. They get House, Senate, presidency. They overreach. That creates a backlash, which then puts the other party in control. They overreach. And and so you have this ping-pong political system, whether it's 2006, where the Democrats threw the Republicans out, or 2010, where Republicans threw the Democrats out, and 2018, the Democrats threw the Republicans out, now 2022, the Republicans are going to throw the Democrats out again. And it, it's a very unstable system. I I believe for some time that if one party could get control of the presidency, the House, and the Senate, and not overreach, that they might actually govern for a while. But we haven't had that as an example very often. Right. Not not recently anyway. And I can assure you, Democrats are hoping, even as we know November is not going to be fun, uh, what you said, Witt, I mean, I can't tell you how many Democrats will say Bill Clinton lost in 1994, got reelected in 1996. Barack Obama got, in his words, shellacked uh, right. in 2010, was reelected in 2012. 
could Biden and Democrats lose in 2022 and come back in 2024, which must be, it will be interesting to watch if Republicans don't think to themselves, you know what, maybe split government so that we don't have to be totally in charge of Congress. Because in reality, very little is going to happen in 2022 or sorry, 2023 and 2024, unless it's a piece of legislation getting 70 votes in the Senate, right? Because Mitch McConnell's not going to have enough to run it through and get it passed uh, and signed by the president and, and, you know, vice versa. So it'll be interesting to watch. I mean, I can remember in 2010, that was the silver lining for us in the white house was, Hey, you know what? We now, we now have somebody to run against, not just somebody uh, on the other side. The pattern you laid out is is certainly valid, uh, and there's nothing to assume that somehow Biden could not win again if Republicans right. take over in 2022. All right, hold that thought. We're going to take a short break, and now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Murphy. Mm. News has to travel fast, as you well know, but hiring often takes longer than expected. In 2022, don't let the search for the best candidates slow down your growth. Find quality candidates fast with Indeed. You know, it's absolutely true, Gibbs. If you are hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And that's the key. Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. They don't make money and you don't pay. So they are incentivized to help you succeed. So instead of spending hours and hours and hours on multiple job sites, hoping to find candidates, with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. You know, Murphy, sorry for the pause. I was just searching podcast co-hosts and <laughs> looking for... I'm right there on Indeed. You can find me. It'll match us up. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. You know, one of the things I love about it, because, you know, you're a small businessman, I'm a small businessman, we hire people, and Time and efficiency are really important. Indeed makes it so easy. You can do it all in one place. And again, as you just said, you don't pay if you don't get results. And I like that, kind of like a campaign. You either win or you lose. That's why, according to Comscore, no surprise here, Indeed is the number one job site worldwide. In fact, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest in the study they did in 2019. So join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that you indeed to hire great talent fast which is important in today's market you gotta find the best people so how do they do it gibsy start hiring right now with a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to upgrade your job posted indeed.com slash hacks the offer is valid through april 30th so go to indeed.com slash hacks to claim your 75 dollars credit before april 30th Indeed.com slash hacks. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. You know, 
it's funny. I remember when I was a kid, my parents were friends with a couple, and he was a old, I believe, Marine pilot, flew with John Glenn, went to work. He was kind of Don Draper at Leo Burnett, the great ad agency in Chicago. And when I was just starting on politics, I asked him about advertising, and you know, he he asked me about negative ads, and he goes, "You know, the funny thing is, over at Leo Burnett, we." Uh, we represent McDonald's. We've been there some, from the beginning. And, you know, we go to work every day. God, we hate those Wendy's guys. Urgh, we hate them. But we never say it or do anything about it because when we're done with them, if that were to happen, and they are done with us, it's the end of hamburgers. You know, and in politics, we've been so busy winning our McDonald's versus Wendy's fight with the two pen- with the pendulum the, the people in the middle are wondering, why have any faith in this system anymore? Which, of course, compounds the the radicalization of people. So what the hell do we do about it? I mean, I've always been a fan of open primaries. I'm getting more interested in first-past-the-post voting. Ways to kind of deleverage the 9% on each side uh, to try to get the marketplace of who you pick closer to the greatest number of people to let the free market work, so to speak. But it's hard. You know, we're we're tribal in our hardwiring. And when your tribe tells you we're surrounded by enemies uh, and they're all liars, cheats, and thieves, and you can have your own TV channel, depending on which side you're on, to tell them that, boy, it's, it's very hard to get this toothpaste back in the tube. It is tough. It is tough. There is some hope in changing some of our election rules. Uh, what Alaska has going on now, yeah. where you eliminate the party primaries, uh, have one jungle primary, and then have a ranked choice voting, is the kind of system that would more incentivize people going to the center rather than going to the extremes. Now, in order to get that passed in most states, you would have to ask the people who benefit from the right, current exactly. system the to overturn yeah. the current system, which which right. is a, a major, major yes. challenge. But yeah. you know what? We've got a lot of states that have referenda and initiatives. And this may be the kind of thing where the people have to come along and say, wait a minute, we want our country back. We want our political system back. We are going to force this change on you as a result of the crazies that both parties have been producing right now. We should take that apart for a minute, Alaska. So jungle primary means that everybody's on one ballot, regardless of what party you belong. And in Alaska, instead of the top two going to the runoff, it's the top four. And then, you know, it's ranked choice, so the wide appeal becomes much more of your incentive in a campaign than the old narrow appeal. And it's going to be fun because you got Lisa Murkowski, the incumbent senator, who is now an independent, though a Republican at heart, challenged by a, a, a candidate from the Trump base of the party. And you have Sarah Palin trying to make a comeback in the at-large yeah. district. Now, under the old rules, somebody with a narrow appeal, narrow appeal, excuse me, which you could argue was Palin, though I'd say her Alaska problems kind of even transcend that, you know, would, would, would have something to work with. Now, not so sure. And this will be a great case study. We saw it in New York City with Eric Adams. Um, yeah, and that's the kind of good idea that might start catching on. It would be, I think, pretty good. Well, I think I've said this before on the podcast, but in talking to some friends uh, who were at the White House during the Supreme Court battle, I think a lot of us thought, okay, they could, we could imagine Mitt Romney uh, on the outside, thought we could see Mitt Romney potentially voting uh, for Judge Jackson, but maybe Murkowski with a tough primary. I wasn't as familiar with the this the primary system that they're talking about uh, that you two have been talking about un, until recently, and 
the White House knew about it and they were actually thinking, actually, we got a better chance at Murkowski than we do at Romney. They ended up getting them both. But to your point, Murphy, you're, you start out running to appeal to a broader group than, um, than just a primary. And Lord right. knows, if you don't think enough people vote in a general election, you should count up how many people vote in a primary because it's a painfully small number right. who are yep. picking, to Witt's point, you're picking these nominees. They become essentially, wrongly, they're tagged as the base um, because we see them in Congress on cable news. But in reality, you know, I think a lot of people that dominate cable news on both sides are not the party's base. They're not the people that is. That's yeah, they're not just the, great noisemakers. That's their real core skill. Murphy's fascinated by a lot of different states. I'm fascinated, originally being from Alabama, I'm fascinated by Georgia. I was I worried Georgia, you were going to say Alabama there, so good. No, no, no. Because no, I'm fascinated worry. by Georgia, too, and we've got the top Georgia guy in the universe here with us today. Other than watching uh, good college football, I'm an Auburn fan, not an Alabama <laughs> fan. I've given up largely on Alabama politics, but I'm fascinated by Georgia. And, and so give us yeah, a little insight on what you see. I mean, obviously, boy, this state held out a long time after voting for Carter in 76, finally glowing blue in 2020, two special election wins in early 21, and, and maybe really the Super Bowl in 2022, because you've got a Republican primary governor of for governor where, to your point earlier, Trump stuck his, his neck out. And it, it didn't look like it's and, and big time, by the way, it's the number one Trump race in the country. Trump will yeah. deny that soon enough. But that is the fact he went in big with David Perdue, yeah. who had been in the senator who lost normally. So he had a real candidate against Governor Kemp. Yeah. Why don't we start with the governor's race wit? Why don't you yeah. uh, now? Are you working for anybody there? We should probably no, ask. No. Yeah. Well, no, we don't really not, follow journalistic yet. ethics anyway, but, you know, <laughs> just so we don't get mail. Well. It's funny. Uh, Governor Kemp has a long history in the Republican Party, a lot of contacts in the Republican Party. Uh, I think that he, um, despite the fact that Trump has been beating up on him, uh, is pretty well positioned against David Perdue in the primary. Uh, and you'd have to assume that, that Kemp, uh, as of today anyway, Kemp would win that primary. Uh, which yeah, I mean, be, I've seen uh, private polling by, you know, one of your colleague firms showing a 20 point plus lead. Now, yeah, we all yeah. know primaries move late and there's little time left, but uh, I thought I'm glad I'm not Purdue. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, and there's so many governors to so many Republican governors who have got to be thanking their lucky stars that Trump won their state. You know, I'm mean, thinking about Florida. What if Biden had won Florida? Ron DeSantis would be in exactly the same position right now as Governor Kemp. <laughs> oh, because he'd had right. to certify the victory. Right, and right. Trump yeah, would have been, Trump on him. <laughs> yeah, he had a Trump on his case. So, I mean, uh, Kemp just got unlucky in the fact that uh, he had to do his constitutional duty and certify Biden's win in Georgia. Stacey Abrams is a, a popular candidate on the left. I think it's likely to be every bit as close as it was the last time. Uh, Georgia is sort of the ultimate swing state. Um, The the real question to me is uh, Herschel Walker uh, in the Senate race. Uh, Half of the North Star opinion company are dyed in the wool Georgia Bulldogs. You cannot get either any of my colleagues to say a negative word about Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker is a god for dyed in the wool Georgia Bulldogs. But you can tell they're not real sure what kind of candidate he's going to be. 
Right. So, yeah. <laughs> whether he'll be a good candidate or not, nobody has any idea. But Georgia, with uh, the Warnock Walker race and with what's probably going to be a, a Camp Abrams race again, is going to be ground zero. Georgia has become probably the number one swing state in the country, uh, the state that gave Democrats control of the U.S. Senate. And so there is an enormous amount riding on what happens in the Georgia election this year. Yeah, I, you know, I'm watching this Walker thing thinking here he is kind of an asymmetrical Superman. You know, he's got that football link to Georgia and he's such a big persona there. But as the campaign microscope hits him and all of a sudden the world's greatest tap dancer has to play the violin, that'll be where the moment is. That said, I think if Biden's numbers were at 50% approval, it would be really tight. If they stay as bad as they are, there's going to be a tailwind, which is going to be pretty forgiving, uh, which I think is bad news for Stacey Abrams, who I'm not sure why she ran this year, by the way. She should have just waited and run for president. Now, she could have been a, a competitive force. But um, uh, we're, we're seeing. This is the kind of reminds me a little 80 where there's some shocker wins in the Senate because the country was just mad enough to kind of push a red button and think later about the challengers. And if that's if that's the scenario again, and we don't know it, then uh, Walker's, for all the bumpy October he might have, is going to be really formidable. And Kemp was a savvy pal. Now, one footnote on Kemp. A lot of my liberal friends are going to be so excited that Trump lost, and I'm going to be excited too because it's a proxy war, and it's time for, I think, the, the conventional wisdom to catch up to the more complicated Trump reality. But one of the reasons Kemp is so strong in a primary is Kemp ain't no country club moderate. <laughs> I suggest our good listeners <laughs> right. Google Kemp for Governor TV ads 2018. He's out blowing up yep. stuff. In, in tone, he can almost out-Trump Trump a little bit. So it it is not – don't think this is the Rockefeller comeback, but it may show Trump is uh, n- not what people presume him to be as an all-powerful arbiter. Let's say – Murphy's polling uh, that he's seen is correct. I mean, far be it for me to doubt a pollster. Just kidding. I'm not a pollster. I work for I'm a living. Just kidding. Sorry, I couldn't resist. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but let's say, let's say a decisive win for Kemp is 60-40. Do you think, I mean, obviously Stacey Abrams is a formidable candidate but and probably helps unite a fractured base, but could you imagine you know, one, we don't know what Trump's going to do, but could you imagine that it would be hard to put that base fully back together? I think it's going to be a challenge for her um, to do that, particularly with what Mike talked about with with the tailwinds that Republicans are going to have this year. Um, it you would have to assume that that Kemp would have a substantial advantage going into the fall. With the enormous, with the weakness of of the current administration and the tailwinds that'll produce, do you think Kemp has trouble getting all of Purdue's voters in a general election? Not if it's against Stacey Abrams. Yeah, no. she'll she'll polarize that. Yeah. yeah. Again, I'm fascinated by Georgia. I think the Herschel thing is going to be very interesting. This bounced around on Twitter a bit, uh, particularly in Democratic circles. Of an interview he did with Maria Bartiroma which didn't sound all that uh, policy heavy. Again, I think Witt's right. Uh, until this most recent Georgia football team, everybody still had their, and they still do, come to games in their Herschel Walker jerseys. 
yep. circa 1980. So it will be interesting to see if people aren't that all that worried about what he's going to do or say, but they revere what he did on the football field 42 years ago. That I think will be interesting. I, one thing I'm just wildly, <laughs> I'm amazed at. We covered this, Murphy, you and I did in, in our newsletter this morning at hacksontap.bulletin.com. Comes out for free twice a week in your email. Raphael Warnock raised more than $13 million in the first quarter, has more than $26 million in the bank. And yet Mitch McConnell's super PAC just put down $37 million of media reservations. My gosh. I mean, it is um, it is remarkable the state that George has become in our politics yep. and the sheer amount of money that is going to be shelled out. I would, I, I, Murphy, we should have bought a TV station in Georgia oh, don't uh, get me like started. two years yeah. ago and yeah. uh, we'd be, uh, we'd be, uh, but I, I think it's going to be amazing to watch all that money. And I think it is, um, it's going to be a superstar race no matter what happens. Yeah. Just one yep. footnote though, to what you said before, Robert on Walker, the best thing Herschel Walker has going for him is he's famous in a good way. And the race is not going to be about Herschel Walker. It's going to be about Joe Biden. Right. And then it's going to be about Warnock and it'll be about him third. So as long as it's not, it doesn't go disastrous for him, unless Biden has a comeback and I'm dubious. Yeah. The one thing I think that gives Democrats hope, Mike, is Democrats remember 2010 and they remember, and, and they remember Republicans nominating some weak, candidates in the Senate races. And even though, again, we got shellacked as Democrats, um, surprisingly, Senate races that should have been won by Republicans didn't happen, right? And I think at least in Colorado and in Nevada, I think I've got those two states right. I know Missouri happened in 2012 because uh, of weak candidates. I think it will be interesting, and particularly when you've got the kind of money that both of these sides have, Running a good campaign and having a good candidate is going to be important. I don't think it is smart at all for Herschel Walker to skip debates because I don't think he's going to be able to do that all that well come the fall. And if I were Herschel Walker, I boy, you know what? I I want to go through uh, I want to go through uh, spring practice before uh, before the fall comes, literally. Uh, and, and and I've got to get used to taking some hits, but also dishing it out. And there's no question, Robert, I mean, Republicans have left half dozen Senate seats on the table in the course of the last dozen years by nominating weak candidates. Yeah, uh, There's no question you're yeah. right. You've still got to run a decent campaign, even in a environment with the wind at your back. you still got to get across the finish line. Right. Um, and that's why I think it's almost inevitable now that Republicans take the House. But the Senate is still very much of a of a closer call because we don't know the kinds of candidates Republicans are going to nominate. Let's just say Georgia's a little bit different than the state where I first met Mike Murphy in a runoff in 1992 oh, with Paul God, Coverdale yeah. against <laughs> White Fowler. Right. Uh, it, it is not exactly the same as, it is as a the state was yep. when I first met Mike. Totally. But interestingly, remember, that was a state, I guess I, I got that wrong. Clinton won that state in 1992. Yes, he did. Right? Yep. Yeah. I, I, I said that wrong earlier that uh, it had been since Carter in 76. Uh, but then they turn around, uh, Weiss Fowler turns around and loses, uh, the, I guess it's the runoff, uh, in that yep. crazy law that, uh, that Georgia has. So I, I, 
I to me again to me there's not a state more fascinating in this cycle than Georgia. I really oh I agree. We're going to be on it on it like a hawk or a couple of hawks yep. or whatever the hell we are. Uh, any other races? Because we're about to head off to the mailbag here with that you're paying particular attention to either in Georgia or anywhere else. I think the primaries in Pennsylvania and Ohio are fascinating uh, because the kind of Republican that comes out of those primaries, I think, could have a very substantial effect on whether or not Republicans can win the general election. Uh, Just exactly what Robert was saying. I mean, if there's some good, strong candidates in those races and there's some wild nutcases. Uh, and if we nominate the wild nutcases, then I think Republic, that Democrats have a very good shot at uh, picking up those seats. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm pulling for Matt Dolan, who has moved up in the data there because yeah. Um, yeah. he's got a super PAC with some millions in it that's helping him out. But the Trump-Vance thing will be interesting. Vance was running third when he has a huge super PAC from Peter Thiel, who's a huge Trumpy billionaire from Silicon Valley. And we'll see. We'll see if the Trump thing can make a yeah. difference there. But everybody's running as Trump except Dolan. Dolan's running as a regular Rob Portman Republican. So that's why he's gone from six up to arguably a third, though, depending on, you know, the data's close. It's kind of they're all lumped together, yeah. those four. Well, the Vance thing, obviously, you know, we, we all, you only have to have a good laptop to find a J.D. Vance never Trump quote. And to have it come now, um, you know, completely full circle, to run a very, and that whole primary is basically tilted uh, toward toward pro Trump. So it'll be interesting to see. I, I think Ohio certainly in in the last few cycles, a little bit more insulated for Republicans. Though again, it could be a place where they have to spend more money than they need to or want to, and don't. Though I don't think anybody's going to lack for money. Uh, but it may take more attention than Republicans want to. But absolutely, there's no place closer than Pennsylvania. We saw that uh, the, the week after the presidential election. And so I, I think picking the right candidate there could make a big difference. So I've got to wipe out Vance right now quickly. I never normally would do this, but he called me about running for Senate when he was an anti-Trump guy. And I remember our conversation. And if Donald Trump had listened in, I doubt he'd be endorsing. So there you go. Worldwide news here on Hags on Tap. I can't believe you saved that till the very end, Murphy. I just I, hope our listeners make it all the way. That's right. Wow. That's right, Buckeye State. Vance was a friend of Mike Murphy, noted rhino Trump hater. So there you go. He has my endorsement because <laughs> it's all a secret plot that we've worked out with the international banking cartel and everybody else to sneak in as a Trumper and then, of course, vote with AOC. Don't be fooled. Uh, let's do Pennsylvania real quick. <laughs> So I, let me start the Democratic primary. We've got a couple minutes here and we got to get to the mailbag. But I'm loving this Democratic primary. You've got Connor Lamb, the congressman, West Pennsylvania Marine, impressive, hasn't really raised enough money to go statewide. Under the old rule book, oh, that guy can win a general election. He's a centrist Democratic set. And I, I believe that. I believe the old rule book. But you got this Lieutenant Governor Fetterman who looks like a professional wrestler who's a Bernie guy. And has a low-dollar money machine, so he's he's blowing Lamb away. And he's a quirky unpolitician, kind of like Jesse Ventura was, which I think in this modern era you shouldn't underrate. On the Republican side, I'll just set it up, and you guys can tell me what's going to happen. You've got Doc Oz from your television screen, now endorsed by Trump, who has been running second in primary data, to David McCormick, who is uh, a former Bush administration official, very capable, I'm formed for Senate, though he's been awkwardly stuffed into a red hat and a Trump suit, even hiring 
a lot of Trump people, Hope Hicks, Stephen Miller, etc., trying to fool the great one who, of course, can't resist vengeance upon his staff uh, and is, is endorsed Oz. Uh, what's going to happen? Will, will Trump move Oz to number one? And in this environment, can Oz win a general election? Normally, I'm with Witt. I'd say weaker candidate. We blow a lot of seats. We're good at it, the GOP. But if it's a tidal wave uh, against Biden, then, you know, even even an Oz could could uh i'm trying to find something that rhymes with oz even an oz could uh zaz i got nothing mike you and i are old enough to remember uh 1980 where reagan brought a number of republican senators in who were not exactly ready for prime time 1986 rolls around they got to stand on their own feet and they all get wiped out right so it does happen look I, i guess i'd still i'm the wrong person to ask about a republican primary the one thing i would think though is I think there are a lot of professionals around McCormick in a sense that I think in a close race, um, my my hunch is that he's got a better overall campaign apparatus that might give him a small enough bump to to make it a win. But, I, you know, again, as we talked about earlier, I think it's going to be fascinating to watch. Oz was probably not the odds-on favorite. Maybe he was the odds-on favorite to be the Trump endorser, but probably isn't the most conservative person in the race, given what he said before. As we talked about, J.D. Vance was third, maybe even fourth in some polling. Oh, definitely uh, fourth, before, even fifth. Timken was in the hunt, right. not anymore. And Mike Gibbons, the self-funder, kind of Dave Thomas meets Bear Bryant meets I don't know who, is is the one <laughs> dropping for Vance. Yo, watch his ads, yeah. by the way. Look up Mike Gibbons. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's going to be this one. This one, remember, Ohio is just two weeks away. So I will will two weeks yeah. from tonight. We'll have some pretty fascinating uh, information about to what we talked about earlier. With you know Trump's strength, is any of that stuff transferable? I'm, I've always been a little leery of this, having watched President Obama try to get in, involved in endorsing and never having it work out all that well. Uh, even though he was wildly popular in in the Democratic Party. Um, but we'll start to get our, our, our Republicans at least taking chances. I agree with you right now that they've got a great backstop, and that is a president at a 42 or 43% approval rating uh, m- means you can make some errors, uh, particularly if you've got a 50-50 state like we had, almost 50-50 state in, in Pennsylvania. If you shift that 10 points towards Republicans, you've created a decent margin of error for yourself. Uh, in order to still be successful. But lots to keep talking about. Well, I think it's time to play the music. It's Listener Mailbag. All right. Gibbs already plugged the hacksontap.bulletin.com newsletter, free twice a week by email. We insult each other. We do a lot of stuff not on the podcast. And, of course, if you have a question for the mailbag, email it to us. Hacksontap at gmail.com, hacksontap at gmail.com. And we have, I think we're about to restock the warehouse. I haven't talked to prison industries lately, but we should have some coffee mugs and beer mugs and cool stuff right there on the hacksontap.com website under store in the upper right-hand corner. Don't be afraid to rate us uh, with pros or cons on Apple or Spotify. It helps us get the word out. All right. Hey, Murphy. Yes. I'm going to beg off this. So I'm going to let you guys okay, do Okay, we're mailbag. doing the mailbag. All right, yeah. great. Wit, good to see you. Enjoyed it. Come back again. Pleasure, Robert. Enjoyed it a All lot. Right. A lot of fun. Thank you, guys.
Bye, thank Murphy. You. See you, Robert. Thank you, pal. And we're going to do a special mailbag because Gibbs, as you all know, is escaping multiple bench warrants and had to run for the county line here. And so Dr. Ayers and I are going to each handle a question and we'll wrap up the show running a little late so it makes sense. All right, our first question for Whit Ayers from Minor. I don't know if Minor is a minor, but Minor wants to know, while Biden still has a Democratic majority, albeit slim, what is to prevent him from nominating and presumably getting approved a Supreme Court nominee who would take their seat on the court upon the next vacancy in the next two years? What do you say, Whit? Well, it's it's a fascinating uh, possibility, but it is constitutionally impermissible. <laughs> the... The other than that, it's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, other than that, it's a great idea. Yeah. The, the president has the constitutional authority to nominate a Supreme Court justice to fill a vacancy. Um, if Biden were to nominate a Supreme Court justice without a vacancy and the Senate were to confirm them, it would be a purely academic exercise that is in no way could bind or would bind the future president because there is no vacancy. So it, it, it's a clever idea, uh, but it is constitutionally inoperative. Other than that, we love it. So Doug wants to know from me, Murphy, what happened in the Michigan precinct you told us about? I think I made a mention on, on this before. So my home state of Michigan has a novel system for nominating down ballot, like attorney general, secretary of state candidates. There's no primary. I think it's all a cabal driven by the uh, rally hat and sign making combines, because what happens instead is on a county basis, there are county conventions. We just had them on the 11th where delegates are elected to go to the state convention, which is coming up, I believe, this weekend. And they do a lot of state convention-y kind of stuff, including, which means there's pretty big turnout, thousands. They pick who's going to be the nominee for attorney general, secretary of state, the, the University of Michigan. There are a million things. But this year, the big deal is the fight over attorney general. It's going to be a good tailwind year for the Republicans. So there are two candidates. There's Tom Leonard, who's a former Speaker of the State House, who ran last time and lost by a couple points, fairly close. And there's a guy named Matt DiPerno, who's a loyal Trumper, who's been very vocal on the election was stolen. They use mind control and, you know, bamboo ballots or whatever. So normally, as Witt knows, in these convention things, the activists, because they turn out, which sometimes can be, not always, the nutty activists can have an edge. But this one has been interesting because the establishment is putting up a big fight. Now, Leonard, the former House Speaker, is no liberal. He's pretty hardcore conservative. But DePerno, the Trump guy, makes him look like uh, McGovern. So what has happened? Well, we don't know yet. It's going to be close. But there were two interesting tells in the precinct, uh, excuse me, the county uh, convention's Last week, one in Macomb County, the famous Reagan Democrat County north of Detroit, which is a big county, a lot of delegates, also known as a very feisty, raucous county in, in Michigan Republican politics, very Trump-friendly land, at least historically. The county chairman and the leadership team got thrown out in, in not a close vote. The county chairman and leadership team, here's the hook in the story, was not establishment. They were Trump people, hardcore Trump people. So for Macomb County to buck a hardcore Trump chairman is a somewhat unnatural act. And it might be a tell because the regulars are still alive in Michigan fighting hard. Um, in Kent County, out on the west side of the state, Grand Rapids, 
uh, the Trump folks tried to overthrow the regular or the, you know, again, none of these are liberals and failed. So early sign that this this very well could be revenge of the traditional conservative establishment in Michigan State Convention. It's going to be closed. There'll be credentials, challenges. Uh, I, I would advise all delegates to bring a, uh, a, a big bottle of Excedrin. Uh, it's going to be something else. But this one is key on a lot of levels. Uh, if Leonard is nominated in this environment, he has a good chance to beat incumbent Don Nessel. If DePerno is nominated... Even in because it's down ballot where stuff can happen, even he might be able to win. And then you've got an outcome denying attorney general of the state of Michigan. Long shot. Uh, I think there'll be a big rally against him, including by some Republicans. But there's some some high stakes here. If you care about our system working, uh, we're, we're giving you a full report on what happened after the convention. And with that. I want to thank my old pal, Whit Ayers. Good to see you again, buddy. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, Mike. Really enjoyed it. A lot of fun. We learned a lot, and we want to get you back as we come into the home stretch in Georgia, and we'll see if any of our crazy predictions come true. If not, we're Blink Gibbs. Sounds good to me. All right. Now, last thing, Whit, is there any social media, Twitter feed, or website where people can follow you if you're opining on things? Because I think we created some Whit Ayers fans today. Yeah, yeah, right. The, the the main thing is the uh, mainstream media, those kind of old timey newspapers. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I I tend to spend more time there than I I do on Twitter or Facebook. Well, that is that is a strong character reference. So we thank you for listening, and we will be back soon.